The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, how to build a cleaner airplane. We all know airplanes are big polluters. And with so many people choosing to fly more, especially now after being cooped up during the pandemic, it's a problem that's only getting worse. As is often the case, Europe is taking the lead to encourage, or you might say pressure, the airlines and airplane makers to clean up their act. It's a really multifaceted problem. It's not just the technical or business side. There's there's these big societal questions and big economic questions for some countries in Europe. Bloomberg reporters Siddharth Philip in London and William Wilkes in Frankfurt, that's who you heard just there, cover the industry's efforts to build a plane that can fly long distances without burning fossil fuel. For a sense of just how far we have to go, I asked Sid to tell us the environmental cost of a typical commercial flight today. So a flight from Frankfurt to New York on a Boeing 747, which is rare now, but is still used, emits about the same amount of carbon dioxide as heating 440 German homes for about a year. That is about 2,000 kilograms or 4,400 pounds per passenger which is a massive amount of carbon dioxide. Airlines are flying hundreds and thousands of planes at any given time, and so the scale of the problem is massive. Will, I guess that really sets up what we're talking about today, which are these efforts to try to make planes less carbon-intensive, cleaner to fly. Yeah, indeed. European countries especially are bringing in quite stringent climate targets and aviation's had something of a free pass up until now. But looking forward, countries like Germany or France can't hit their climate targets without now tackling this problem. And then this really fiendishly difficult problem of reducing emissions from aircraft without destroying the aviation sector and without damaging transport connections within Europe. It's a really difficult problem. It's also the airline industry itself has set itself net zero targets by 2050. So it's not just the airline industry coming under pressure from the government, but they've also set their own targets, which are crucial in order for them to sort of decarbonize to net zero by 2050. So when you say net zero by 2050 for the entire industry, what exactly does that mean? When they say net zero, it basically means that they're not putting any new carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, but essentially they're using methods to try and reduce carbon emissions, which are already in the air, bringing back that carbon without adding any more. So you don't add any more carbon into the air, but also not flying truly zero. And Will, how do you do that? Because we're not really talking about planes no longer polluting at all. It's kind of they're offsetting it elsewhere. Is that right? 
There are several ways airlines and plane manufacturers are talking about doing it. One crucial one are these things called sustainable aviation fuels. And they basically recycle carbon that is already above ground and turn them into fuels. So you're not taking any more carbon from below the ground. So examples are things like biofuels where you kind of turn animal fat into a combustible fuel. There are even more kind of sci-fi ones like synthetic fuel where you would extract carbon from the atmosphere and combine it with hydrogen. And then you make a synthetic hydrocarbon that's very similar chemical properties to normal jet fuel. But because the carbon's been drawn out of the atmosphere, it's not taking any more carbon from below the earth. Of course, those fuels do generate carbon dioxide when they're burned. And we're going to talk a little bit more about sustainable aviation fuel later in the show. What are some other ways that plane manufacturers are trying to lower how much these planes pollute? There has been a lot of technology developments in terms of reducing fuel burn with the existing engine. So as planes get newer and newer generations, engines tend to emit less CO2 because they burn less fuel. And improving efficiency is one way of doing it. The other way they've been talking about is improving efficiency in terms of air navigation. So instead of having planes that are hovering for a while, you have the planes fly direct routings and essentially allows you to negate the carbon impact from planes circling endlessly waiting to land. The issue with those kind of approaches is you get like marginal improvements in how much carbon a flight or a per passenger emits. And the problem is, is aviation, as countries get richer, is just growing so fast that it really just negates any of these really piecemeal approaches that get you these marginal environmental benefits. So, yeah, engines get better with each generation, but so many more people fly the environmental benefit is only really there in a kind of abstract per person measure. And that's not how carbon's polluted. I think environmentalists and academics would say you have to focus on the absolute amount of carbon emissions coming from aviation. And that is continuing to arise unabated by minor improvements in technology. And one of the things you write about is one reason why so many more people are flying is that for a long time, Flying got really, really cheap. It's expensive now. But we all got used to such cheap fares that people started flying who never flew before and started flying more often than they ever flew before. More people flying more often is basically what drove the aviation industry, but it's also been the sort of source of a lot of the carbon emissions. And while planes that you fly these days are way cleaner than what they used to be 20 years ago or 50 years ago, the number of planes that are in the sky are also far greater than they used to be 20 years ago and 50 years ago, which sort of creates this new problem where you're trying to reduce emissions on a per plane basis. But if there are more planes flying in the sky, then you're not really addressing the core issue as a whole. It's not just people that are flying more. If you think about how our contemporary world works, you've got kind of next day delivery. So much freight is done by air now because we want things so quickly. And that's another change that has happened and that's causing more flights. Economies grow and people get richer. There's an increase in how much stuff they order online. Things like medicines and food, like that's just getting moved around the world at such a fast pace by aviation now. And, and that's another huge change that we've seen maybe over the last 30 years as well. Why was flying so much cheaper than it used to be? I mean, obviously fuel is more expensive now, but does that account for all of it? 
So a lot of that is because of Europe essentially in the 1990s opened up the skies to competition and allowed airlines like Ryanair and others to thrive where you could be an operator running services from your base in Ireland, but you can operate services across the continent. And that spurred a lot of other discount carriers like EasyJet and Wizzer, who all operate on the same model where you have planes that are based across different countries, flying to different countries without having to get bogged down in if you're an airline from the UK, you can only fly to and from the UK and within the UK, it's only restricted to flying in the UK. Similarly for Germany and other countries where now you can have airlines that are not based in your country, but have local units or just have bases in those countries. And they're sort of flying routes that would normally be reserved for the one or two dominant carriers. And this shift has been really important for Europe's economic cohesion. In Europe, you roughly have a very wealthy Northern Europe with advanced manufacturing and world-class services economy. And then you have like a Southern Rim that's always traditionally had like higher unemployment, less industry. And those places kind of in Greece, parts of Spain, parts of Southern Italy are really dependent on cheap aviation to bring wealthy tourists from northern parts, from those kind of wealthier areas of northern Europe, and to get them spending money in poorer parts of southern Europe. This is another challenge that the aviation sector in European society faces in trying to cut emissions. You're really starting to unpick kind of the economic fabric of some relatively vulnerable countries if you move too quickly on this and if you increase taxes or try and just do things to dent demand for cheap aviation. It's a really multifaceted problem. It's not just the technical or business side. There's, there's these big societal questions and big economic questions for some countries in Europe. And we're starting to see now exactly that, a lot of pressure from governments to cut down on these short routes. Europe has really good train travel, unlike, say, the United States, where it's almost impossible to get long distances by train. In Europe, it's easy to do it. And so it seems that governments are starting to crack down on some of these shorter routes. There is a massive crackdown. I mean, we saw that during the pandemic when a lot of the aid to the airlines was tied to decarbonization goals. And essentially, there was a lot of pressure on governments to say that airlines that are taking bailouts should also be forced to scrap routes that are easily sort of duplicated on short train journeys. And we have seen a sort of rise in areas where there is a train alternative that's convenient. We have seen a rise in train travel. I mean, London, Paris, for instance, is one of the busiest sectors they used to be sort of dominated by the airlines. And now we've seen the Eurostar taking as much as 70 or 80% of traffic. So we talked about how there is this industry goal of reaching net zero by 2050. That's coming up pretty fast. Where are we? How close to that goal is the industry right now? It isn't very close at the moment. They're working on multiple measures, but the aviation industry is one that has very, very, very long lead times. And it also has very stringent safety requirements. So you can't have technology adoption as quickly as, say, the auto industry, where we have electric vehicles gaining prominence far more significantly. And fundamentally, there's also the problem of physics. So problems that are easily solved on the ground are much harder to solve when you're in the air. Looking at 2050, it's very, very difficult to see how the industry reaches net zero without some kind of unexpected, almost like miraculous breakthrough in technology. When we come back, how about a plane that runs on hydrogen? Hydrogen. 
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Sid, right before the break, Will was talking about how hard it will be to reach this net zero goal by 2050 without, you know, some sort of really big breakthroughs. And airplane manufacturers are working on some pretty far out stuff. Absolutely. So Airbus is promising to build a hydrogen powered plane that enters into commercial services sometime in the mid 2030s. And so that's only 15 years away. They're working on a couple of solutions. One of them is fuel cell powered. So essentially, think of it like a fuel cell powering your hydrogen cars. So you have a little bit of hydrogen that essentially generates electricity, that powers electric motors, that powers the plane. That is the basic sort of fuel cell technology. You also have hydrogen combustion where it works more like a traditional jet engine where instead of burning kerosene, a jet engine burns hydrogen. And at the moment, they're working on both solutions. Airbus is sort of throwing its weight more towards fuel cell technology because it does seem to be the solution, especially for smaller planes that fly shorter distances. It does seem to be something that could be attainable. We've also seen startups like Zero Avia and Universal Hydrogen also approaching the same fuel cell technology solution. It's really a question of how we get there. Rolls-Royce is also working on hydrogen combustion. So depending on which technology works the best, I mean, we may see one or two of these solutions actually working on planes that fly in the skies by 2035. If you look at the automotive sector, by kind of Chinese regulations and also the force of Tesla's rise, the whole industry is kind of swung behind more or less completely to battery electric vehicles. There's this big need to scale up these solutions quickly to hit the 2050 target. Got lots of different companies are working on lots of different technologies, and there's not really kind of an industry consensus about what the solution is. And that's obviously something you would need to have to hit these 2050 goals. Especially if you want to get the infrastructure in place, because flying an airplane that's powered by hydrogen is one solution. But then you also need to fuel up the aircraft. You need to be able to handle the aircraft at airports around the world. So you need to build up an infrastructure that is capable of supporting those aircraft across the world, not just in Europe or the US or anywhere. So you have to be able to sort of scale up that solution and deploy it and ensure that there's sufficient supply of hydrogen around the world. And so that's all going to take some time to develop. Hydrogen is now being seen as a kind of silver bullet for several so-called hard-to-abate sectors. Companies want to use it to get to zero emissions in the steel sector. Companies want to use it to get to zero emissions in the chemical sector, um, cement as well. So you have the world going from a kind of tiny, negligible, almost non-existent green hydrogen production capacity suddenly needs to have enough hydrogen to kind of decarbonize vast waves of industry. And aviation will, if it goes down a hydrogen path, be competing with those industries for that fuel. Even if you can solve the technical challenge, there's a major business economic challenge there. I suppose also if they were able to 
build these planes and they flew successfully, there's still thousands and thousands of the current aircraft that would have to be phased out over many, many years. So we're looking at probably decades, right, before you would even be able to convert the fleet? Absolutely. I mean, most aircraft have a service life of about 25 years. And so we're still going to be seeing conventional aircraft being delivered into the 2030s. So 25 years from that is into the 2060s. So that's hydrogen, which sounds like it's a while away. But you report that is not the only renewable fuel that planemakers are looking at. So aside from hydrogen, there's also companies that are exploring hybrid electric or electric powered aircraft. So we have a company called Hart Aerospace as a startup based in Sweden that's talking about building a 30-passenger aircraft that has a range of flying about 200 kilometers on electric power alone as or even 400 or 800 kilometers with the combination of a hybrid technology where the hybrid engine generates electricity for the aircraft. And that could also be a solution, but given the fact that lithium-ion batteries aren't great at storing large amounts of energy, we may not see that working for sort of long-haul intercontinental aircraft. One thing that made fossil fuels so successful is that they're just so energy dense. Of course, the other thing is, is when you go on a long-haul flight, you're actually getting rid of the fossil fuels from fuel tanks as, as you fly. The fuel consumption is not linear on a flight. You burn a lot of fuel at the start, and then because the plane's getting lighter because you're burning fuel, you need less fuel further along the flight. So the calculation for long distance is based on the aircraft losing weight as it travels. And obviously you can't do that with lithium-ion batteries. You lose the energy from the battery, but the weight is still there. Until we see some kind of real and this may not even happen in our lifetimes, a kind of real step change in battery density or, or something like that, you're not going to see battery-powered planes on long-haul flights. So it looks like things are looking up 30 years in the future. But when we come back, what can be done to reduce plane pollution right now? Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Will, as you say, both hydrogen and batteries to power planes are a ways off. So can the sustainable aviation fuels that you mentioned earlier help with some of the emissions problems in the meantime while they're developing these things? There's a variety of them. So you have biofuel-based sustainable aviation fuel, which might take animal fat and turn that into a combustible kind of hydrocarbon Then in Germany in particular, they're working on some slightly more out of left field fuels called synthetic aviation fuels, which basically would pull carbon out of the atmosphere and combine it through a chemical process, which was the chemical process that the Germans used in World War II to turn coal into fuel for the Luftwaffe and for their kind of soldiers when Germany couldn't get access to oil fields. Through this process, you can make kind of a synthetic fuel 
from hydrogen and carbon from the atmosphere. But again, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that that's probably quite expensive and takes massive amounts of renewable energy to make. Probably in the future, this will be able to be done at a large scale, but in this relatively short kind of 25 year period we have, it's difficult to see how it's going to make a major difference. Right now, they're kind of expensive, right? Yeah, they're several times more than the cost of uh, normal kerosene. As well as that, there's also just very, very small supply of these fuels at the moment. And uh, scaling up will be a massive task. If you look at this sort of ramp up goals for sustainable aviation fuel, they're talking about 10% sustainable aviation fuel blended into regular jet fuel in 2030. So essentially, it's a long drawn solution. It's not going to be something that sort of decarbonizes the industry tomorrow. It's going to be a long roadmap towards it. But it does seem to be the only real solution that the airline industry has as they work on radical designs and new technologies. Some airlines allow passengers to pay more for a ticket to support these cleaner fuels. How does that work? There are some airlines that are kind of tentatively offering it. The way it works is if we take Lufthansa, which is Europe's uh, largest airline, they do offer passengers an option whereby you can, when booking your ticket, you can pay an extra fee for sustainable aviation fuel. Obviously, that fuel that that passenger buys doesn't get put onto the actual flight that passenger's taking. It will at some point be put into Lufthansa's fleet somewhere else. Customers don't really seem willing to pay that extra for their flight tickets to secure these fuels. If customers are left to pay for it themselves, most of them don't really want to pay. Because, I mean, as some airline executives explained to me the other day, if there's a rival airline that's offering a fare that's 15 euros cheaper, people are likely to choose that. So would people pay extra for sustainable aviation fuel? Probably not. So given all the complications here, a lack of a viable option, a long timeline before these renewable-powered planes come into existence, and a lack of willingness of flyers to pay extra, where do things go from here? How long do you think before we actually have net zero in airline travel? If I had to guess, I think it would be some point way beyond 2050 and There's a lot of extremely talented engineers in the aviation sector and scientists working on this. So you can never kind of rule out a technological solution, but just the targets we're talking about seem too soon. All the while, other sectors are going to be decarbonizing rapidly. So we know what's happening with electric cars and in some countries they're bringing in bans in the 2030s on new combustion engine sales. So we'll see road transport emissions go down. We're probably starting to see industrial emissions go down. In the electricity generation sector with wind and solar power, actually emissions in a lot of countries have already fallen quite a lot. If aviation emissions are continuing to rise because more people are flying into the 2030s and 40s, are we looking at maybe in 10, 15 years from now that aviation is in a kind of world where this voter demand to go green is intensifying? Are we looking at aviation companies as kind of the new tobacco companies of the 2030s and 2040s? As a proportion today, aviation emissions are about 2.5% of global emissions. But as other sectors decarbonize, that proportion is just going to get higher and higher. And there is going to be more pressure. I mean, before the pandemic, we did see 
activists like Greta Thunberg and others talking about flight shaming where people were told not to take unnecessarily flights. And we've seen a resurgence in air travel, especially after the pandemic when people want to fly again and everything else. But once that pent up demand abates, will flight shaming come back? And will the aviation industry be under pressure from that? Will, Sid, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Wes. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zenab Siddiqui. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.